Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we're, of course, uh, still sorting out the fallout from this Tuesday's election, including the the multiple interesting storylines from uh, Pennsylvania, where Republicans still have their hair on fire over the politically suicidal, disastrous <laughs> nomination of Doug Mastriano to be governor after Donald Trump's endorsement. And apparently everybody is pretty much mad at Trump over this. Now, they will get over it. We still have the Senate race uh, that is deadlocked. So we're going to take a break from trying to figure out what happened there and what it means, because there has been an orgy of punditry about that. And go back to this other giant looming issue that's like hanging over our culture and our politics. And that's the imminent uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade by the United States Supreme Court. So joining us today, our contributor, Kim Whaley, a law professor at the University of Baltimore, a contributor as well to Politico uh, and The Atlantic. And her new book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why? A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. So, Kim, first of all, good morning. Good morning, Charlie. So rather bold to put the word lawyer and common sense in the same sentence. I know it is definitely, <laughs> it's a brain teaser for sure. And we've talked about that before, but actually this is a great topic uh, to introduce the book through because the point of the book is that these are not straightforward black and white issues and abortion certainly isn't one of them. So let's talk about Roe versus Wade. And, and we're going to warn people that we're going to walk through this. And this is kind of a deep dive. You and I were chatting before this and, you know, part of the problem I find in listening to the debates is that they tend to almost immediately become these sort of cartoon versions, uh, bumper sticker versions of, you know, you're on one side or the other side. And I would say that there is a significant lack of good faith argumentation that often goes on. So what we're going to try to do here is talk through the actual cases in front of the court and the law and the Constitution. Uh, does that seem like a good idea to you, Kim? I do, Charlie, because as we were talking about, I think understanding the ground rules, the legal ground rules, is one way of maybe shifting the debate into more productive territory because people get it wrong across the ideological spectrum. They get the law wrong. So you wrote in The Atlantic that uh, this case, and it's called Dobbs, uh, the Dobbs case likely marks the end of the constitutional protections for abortion rights. Uh, and I think that this has been some time coming here uh, when the court decided to take up the case and when it refused to even temporarily block uh, that Texas law, uh, which had the six-week abortion ban. Uh, that was pretty clearly signaling the outcome. And then, of course, we got the the Alito uh, draft leak. But you make an interesting point here. This case is likely to overturn Roe versus Wade and Casey. And one of the things that I think is worth talking about is why Roe has been so vulnerable and why even those people who consider themselves pro-choice have been critical of the Roe reasoning. And you write that Roe's vulnerability derives from how the issue was framed in the first place as a question of an individual's reproductive rights and not one of the proper scope of government. So I want you to talk about that because that's kind of an interesting take. You think that was sort of the original mistake of, of Roe? I do. And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but people 
tend to assume, this is the, the baseline talking point, that, oh, Roe versus Wade was theoretically built on a pile of sand. It's so weak. It's so foundationally flawed as a matter of constitutional law that, that it was eventually going to go because it's some kind of one-off, that it's an outlier in constitutional law. And no, it's not. And the argument that I make in the Atlantic piece, which follows up on a piece I did back in December for the Atlantic, where I said, listen, if Roe goes, we're going to see a lot of things go, is Roe is about whether the government should be able to interfere in personal family decisions. And the question isn't so much pitting women against fetuses, which is where it's happened, how the debate has evolved. Okay, wh- whose rights should be paramount. And for the last 50 years, the women won, at least until viability, around 24 weeks. And now we're going to see in June or July, when this opinion becomes official, that the fetus wins. But that's not really the debate. The debate isn't, what do you do about a pregnancy that maybe a woman wants to terminate? The, The debate is about how much power do we give the government? It's really a libertarian point of view. And it stretches Back to the 1920s, as I talk about in these two, two, two articles, Roe isn't, people talk about Roe being about Griswold. And I, I know, Charlie, we can talk about Griswold, yeah, uh, the case with the, uh, you know, the right to privacy and people criticize the right to privacy. But Roe goes way back to the 1920s where the state of Nebraska was trying to interfere with parents' ability to teach their children German. Uh, so none of this stuff is in the Constitution. And so my argument is, listen, if, if, if we reframe it about not so much what do you do about a pregnancy, but what, how much power do you want to give government over your individual life, I think more people can get behind this notion, well, you know, we might not want government getting too powerful because the framers understood that, you know, it's human nature to, to entrench and amass and ultimately to, to abuse the power that is giving you. This is why we have a republic and we don't have a direct democracy. I just want to clarify this. So what you're arguing is that we should think about Roe not as ratifying a bundle of rights that women have, but rather as what government can and can't do, which strikes me as kind of a classically libertarian point of view. But the decision itself clearly rests on certain liberties, right of privacy that they believe individual women have, individual couples have in the case of Griswold and Eisenstadt. So, I mean, is there some disagreement here? I don't disagree with you in terms of that we ought to look at this about, you know, what is the proper and appropriate scope of government? But much of Roe does seem to be trying to discover in the penumbras of the Constitution various unenumerated rights. Yeah. So, you know, backing up a little bit, um, I mean, as you know, Charlie, we've talked about, it, I wrote a book on the constitution and when, when I ask people in, in speaking environments, okay, what is a constitutional right? Um, inevitably someone raises their hand and says, it's just something I'm bored with. But as a practical matter, all it really means is that you can go to court and get an injunction stopping government. That's all it really means. It's an ability to, to basically get a cop on the block to stop government from interfering. So that, it, 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 you know, I mean, I guess my argument is sort of all rights are really should be reframed in that way in terms of how we approach it because it one thing leads to another. Now, Roe itself, let me get back to that in the Meyer versus Nebraska yeah. case. It comes from the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which of course was a post-Civil War reform designed to force Southern states to actually comply with Reconstruction and give 
formerly enslaved people equal access to legal protections. That's basically what it was. But all it says in, in the 14th Amendment is that you have a due pro- right to due process of law. You know, it doesn't define what that means. It, there's no definition section. You can go back to the Magna Carta of 1215, and we know back in England it meant, okay, you know, the sort of fancy rich people that that were right below the king, you know, the lords and and barons or whatever they were called said, listen, king, we're sick of you having the ability to do whatever you want. We want a deal here. And one of the deal it, parts of the deal is before you can execute someone or put them in jail, take life or liberty, we get a hearing. And that's a procedural right, right? You get a trial or something. In this, this series of cases back to the ni- early 20th century, the court said, you know, there's something about liberty that's beyond just you get you know, government could execute you as long as you get some kind of perfunctory hearing, right? There's something, there's certain kinds of things that just government can't interfere with at all. That's what we understand liberty to be in under uh, sort of the American sensibility, that some kind of liberty is just off limits. And, And it defined that to include things like the ability to choose your own profession, the ability to enter into a contract without, you know, North Korean government saying you can or cannot do that, right? The ability to get married, period, and decide who you want to marry. This is not about race. This is not about LGBTQ rights, Charlie. It's about whether, you know, even, you know, I say even, but historically white heterosexual people can choose their own person to marry and government doesn't get to do that. Nothing in the constitution mentions marriage, period, right? So, Fast forward to this Griswold versus Connecticut case, and that's where, when it came down to contraception, can government decide whether married couples can use contraception? The court kind of went off on, you know, a bit of a frolic and a detour, frankly, in terms of explaining this idea of liberty and said, well, we're going to sort of take little snippets of lots of parts of the Constitution and pull together a new right called privacy. Yeah. And that's, I think, where it really did a t- d- detour. People are like, what are you talking about? This is really, it just wasn't a well-reasoned opinion. But it, Griswold isn't what established this idea of liberty being a, a, a sacred sphere around family decisions. That was way back to the early 20th century. So Griswold maybe is, you know, maybe a, a C plus in terms of analysis, but the concept behind Griswold is what is what goes way back beyond before that. And I think most Americans would say, you know, listen, even if it's not in black and white, Justice Alito, which is his argument, if it's not written down, if there's not a definition section of liberty, it's not protected. I think most Americans will say, you know, there is some stuff I just don't want government to touch. And if you start tinkering with Roe on the theory that abortion isn't black and white in the Constitution, Charlie, then, you know, we're seeing all this crazy stuff happening across the country. I know you've been talking about what happened in Pennsylvania, right? There's, you know, with the governor's race and the very right-wing radical Republican nominee for governor, there's no right to vote in the Constitution, Charlie. It's not there. So so would you get government to just decide this stuff for us? Well, as a conservative, this sounds... This sounds very, very familiar. This was an argument that that conservatives made for a long time, that the Constitution really radically restricted the powers of government. Now, Kim, you mentioned uh, due process being uh, procedural. And and at the risk of becoming too wonky here, Mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about the concept of substantive due process, which my limited understanding is this the notion that due process not only protects the procedures, but also protect certain rights unrelated to the procedure. Exactly. And, and that, that seems to be crucial to what we're talking about here. Right. And that's, I mean, thanks for putting the sort of wonky term to it. That's exactly what I was saying earlier 
okay, so we know, again, back in the Jolly Shires of England, we're going to still put you in chains in the dungeon, but you get to see a judge before. Like, that's the process of due process. It goes back again, 1215, Magna Carta. And substantive due process is this idea that I was saying you there's certain things that are just off right. limits. Okay. Uh, courts just added the word substantive, meaning you can get all the hearing you, you know, give me a hearing, but you still can't tell me government who I can marry. You can't say, okay, I get to decide that for you, Kim, so long as you get a hearing. Like that is, okay, say the Maryland legislature decides we have to bless as a legislature or a judge has to bless every single marriage. And if we don't like who you're marrying, the government can say you're not allowed to do that. So long as you get a little five-minute hearing. Substantive due process says, no, guess what? Hearing schmearing, you still can't decide that government. That's something that stays in the individual family personal sphere. That there's something, the way I like to think about it, Charlie, is like a lot, you know, you hear about federalism too. It's like, okay, which government branch should get it? Should it be the federal government or the states? The idea of substantive due process is nobody gets it. It stays in your personal life. Okay, so let's go to uh, Alito's opinion, which was a draft, um, very, very full-throated. My guess is, and you tell me what what you think about this, is that that will be modified if it's the majority opinion, um, and that there will be multiple opinions from the other justices, because I can certainly imagine that uh, that Justice Gorsuch uh, and Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh, uh, you know, probably don't, you know, probably want to lay out their own uh, thinking about all of this. I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, we, we're speculating here. I mean, I'm not sure about the majority, yeah. Um, yeah. the Kavanaugh's and the Coney Barrett's and the Gorsuch's of the world, but uh, you know, we'll see something from the Chief Justice. I mean, I think what we'll see is, you know, fractured. I, I agree with point, you know, part 2B, but not part 2C. Right. You know, we're going to see a big hodgepodge mess and we'll have a very strong dissent, of course, from the yeah. from the more progressive wing, the three that are left. So let's talk about Alito's argument. And and it seemed like the heart of this was that he's rejecting the, the idea of unenumerated rights that do not have long histories in our in our in our culture and in in the American political world, is that co- basically correct? That that he he's not saying that there are no enumerated rights, but that that for an, an unenumerated right, like for example, the right to have an abortion, or I suppose the right you know to gay marriage, uh, it has to have a long tradition, you know, deep roots in in American society. Well, I mean, I think that that's a fair summary, but I do think he actually does it. That's a two-part test. One is, is it enumerated? And if it's not, which like, for example, the, the freedom of association that you and I get to have this conversation right now, that's not enumerated. So there's lots of things that are not enumerated, even not in the due process clause, in the first amendment, in the second amendment, and lots of things that are unenumerated. But he's like, okay, so the ones that well, are wait, wait, black and white. Association is, is explicitly mentioned in the first amendment, isn't it? Assembly, assembly, oh, okay. but not association. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think okay, again, okay, it's just a surprise, fair. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So assembly means we can, we can gather on the mall. Association is I get to decide who my friends are or my colleagues. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. And then he says, okay, those are the, those are the ones that are most enshrined that, that we won't touch. But if it's unenumerated, then you have to look to quote, deep history and tradition. This goes back to a case called Glucksburg. The problem there is, you know, how do you define that? Someone would say, well, deep history and tradition is 50 years of precedent that Kavanaugh called in his, in his confirmation hearings. Roe is precedent on precedent, the most careful kind. 
Justice Alito goes all the way back to, you know, the 13th century, 500 years before the Constitution was ratified. Some would say, okay, at a minimum, you'd go to around the time the 14th Amendment was ratified. You don't go beyond. I mean, that's the problem. How do you define history and tradition? And of course, our history and tradition has been to recognize more rights, not fewer. So it's really intellectually dishonest and and problematic. That's part two. And it also just opens up in my mind, just so much subjectivity, Charlie, we just, as we're we're just kind of beholden now to these five people or what I think what'll happen, frankly, is the five people, the majority will just say it's going to be a state decision. And then we're, and then it's, you know, we're going to have red, red America and blue America, the, what I like to call the divided States of America, not the United States of America. I think that's where we're headed with this court. Well, you mentioned this before. You you alluded to it that you know if this opinion, let's say that the the draft opinion goes through pretty much intact, which we don't we don't know, the risk of unraveling other rights. So I, I guess if in fact you say you establish as the precedent of the court uh, again that there is not necessarily a right of privacy or no right of privacy. I'm not sure he goes that far. Does he? Does he basically say there's no right of privacy in the Constitution? That seems to be the implication. Yeah, I can answer that. Yeah, he, yeah. he acknowledges this unraveling, right? He acknowledges, listen, I understand now that what right, we're right. doing it this way, we're going to open up and I can tell you, he he has a few caveats on how he tries to right. carve out abortion. I don't think they hold water, meaning I think we're going to see more rights unraveling. But yes, to answer your question, yes, there's not really a meaningful test anymore between enumerated right number one and enumerated right number two. And I don't think anybody wants to go back to, you know, burning witches um, or whatever. Yeah. Well, the reason I I mentioned this is because his logic in saying that there's not deep roots for the right for abortion is almost exactly the language that he used in his dissent in the gay marriage case, saying that there was no deep history of all of that. So I guess the question is, if this now becomes the standard of the court, you did mention the unraveling. What other rights are unraveled? Like, I, I, on a practical basis, I, I, I don't see rolling back the right for contraception. I, I don't see bans on interracial marriage or things like that. But clearly, this is a radical turn in the court's jurisprudence. So, tell me what what else might, over time, be at risk from this kind of thinking. Okay, so his his way of saying, listen, we're not going to interfere with other rights is to say, well, this involves life. Right. So that's where, honestly, I do think contraception is probably a a problem in theory because we're already seeing trigger laws that would potentially criminalize the use of an intrauterine device, for example, a a contraceptive device that interferes with implantation the, the egg is already fertilized. So so I, so I if the idea is life, I think it's squarely contraception's on the table under his theory. Maybe not marriage, maybe not um, forced sterilization. You know, that was Skinner versus Oklahoma. That comes from liberty, due process. The government can't forcibly sterilize prisoners. That's not enumerated. Um, you could say um, the government's uh, decision to forcibly uh, have you undergo some kind of surgery or some kind of medical care um, that maybe you don't want to do? We just saw the debate about vaccines and masks. I think that that is, um, you know, that that should be easy that government can do that. But obviously, people have strong feelings about that. I mean, relatively easy compared to other things. And then all the way again back to Meyer versus Nebraska, ideas like you know. Um, Education. The theory in Nebraska was we want to prioritize English in this country. 
And the court said, no, you know, government can't decide on on what languages are spoke are taught. I mean, there was a, a sixth grade teacher, I think, in a parochial school that was criminally prosecuted and convicted for teaching German. Um, so, so I mean, I, I think, I think Charlie, we are like this could never happen, and I understand that. But just from a legal standpoint, from a lawyerly standpoint, from a constitutional, you know, scholarly standpoint, the Dobbs decision doesn't give us any dividing line other than what these five people subjectively and ideologically decide is something that should be protected and not. Yeah, that's I, my problem with I it. I think that's what comes down to. It's just really arbitrary and subjective and they're not elected. They're not accountable at the polls. You know, I, that is my problem with it, that there's no test anymore. There's no test except what they want. And that scares me because we're seeing crazy radical stuff happen in America, as you talk about in your newsletter is so eloquent mm -hmm. and funny, frankly, and the way you <laughs> capture it is like so good. Um, we're on this crazy trajectory. So to say the crazy is going to not go to cross some, some lines. No, that's just, to me is, is just, you know, I, I just, unfortunately, maybe I'm just too much of a nervous Nelly, but no, well, I, don't I, think. I think, I think you're also a realist. I think you, yeah. you have, you have no illusions here. You're not engaging in wish casting. So here, here's a, here's a slight digression. Um, I was uh, I was actually trying to look up uh, some of the the, the, the court cases uh, involving a right to privacy. And back in um, in uh, 1999, I actually wrote a book about the right of privacy. And I was going through looking for you know some cases. And and I, I was thinking, you know, where where is that? I have a discussion of the case from the 1980s where the court ruled that uh, states could continue to criminalize homosexual sex. Uh, yeah, Bauer versus Hardwick. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm I'm looking at that thing. Boy, you know that 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 was interesting. And as I was paging right. through the book, it just it occurred to me. And remember, I wrote this book in 1999. That it was not until 2003 that the court overturned that precedent. It was only in 2003, less than 20 years ago, that in Lawrence v. Texas, that the court said that states could not criminalize homosexual sex. I mean, that is relatively recent for people who wonder how you know solid a basis are some of these rights. I have to admit, I had to do kind of a double take to realize that when I wrote my book on privacy, that case had not even appeared yet. So, you know, wow. there are these cases out there. And you read the dissents from people like Justice Scalia and you realize there's strong, quote unquote, originalist uh, opposition to even a decision now that I don't think would be you know, seriously in, in question. Maybe, maybe not. But you make an excellent point. And, and the problem with these kind of using an axe instead of a scalpel, right, is how are you going to define, I mean, say, say Lawrence versus Texas was the court were to apply Alito's two-part test. So just let's do the right. analysis. Number mm -hmm. one, there's nothing in the constitution protecting intimate sexual conduct. Okay. Period. Heterosexual or homosexual. So we're sodomy, sodomy. Sodomy does not appear in the constitution. Does not appear in the constitution. No, no. So we go back to, okay, history and tradition. And as you indicate, history and tradition, it's a couple decades. It's even weaker than Roe versus Wade in terms of history and tradition. Certainly if you went back Back to common law England or historically in this country, you know, homosexual intimate conduct was certainly not, not part of our history and tradition. I mean, people were closeted when I was in high school, right? I mean, it was, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights is a fairly recent phenomenon in terms of sort of, you know, generalized cultural acceptance and, and legal acceptance for this. So yeah. And then that's okay. Then you're sitting around and you're send it back to the States and it's okay. How do you define that? What, what goes in the law? 
And how do you distinguish between gay sodomy and heterosexual sodomy? And then who gets to decide? You're talking about prosecutors. We're seeing this with abortion. We're seeing it already with providers who say you have an ectopic pre- pregnancy. The the fetus um, doesn't make it to the uterus and ends up implanting in a fallopian tube. It's a very high chance of maternal death. Yes. And the way that those those pregnancies are ended to save the mother is to to issue, to give a prescription for spontaneous abortion. But there are people in Texas, providers that are not, or pharmacies that will not issue those prescriptions because they don't want to be prosecuted under the SBA um, bounty hunter law. Then you've got the the providers like, okay, now what do I do? Because if I don't issue, if I don't get this prescription, I could then be faced with a, a malpractice suit when mom dies. Mm-hmm. Like these are all the little nuances that 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 if you again okay no right to X Y Z we'll leave it to the states opens up a whole host of of ripple effects that you and I sitting here today can't necessarily anticipate and is going to hurt people that in this moment think they're not going to be affected. Okay, so let's talk about how Alito himself um, goes out of his way to distinguish Roe and Casey from all of these other cases that we're talking about. Let's do that right after this. If you're like me, whenever you look for news, you may feel forced to choose between echo chambers in the mainstream media and conspiracy-obsessed alternative media, but that's why you should check out The Lost Debate. It's a podcast and a YouTube show for political eclectics who want to escape their media bubbles and engage in good faith with ideas from across the political spectrum. The Lost Debate is hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Barack Obama and a school principal who founded ARENA, an organization that's trained thousands of campaign staffers and helped elect hundreds of candidates, and Corey Bradford, a political organizer from the Deep South turned TikTok star who once hosted a Fox News radio show and Ricky Schlott, a Generation Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. Together, they cover the latest news, ideas, and trends the mainstream media often overlooks. So instead of being at each other's throats, they focus on bringing new perspectives to the table in constructive debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. So you can join the conversation. Check out The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop twice a week. Find The Lost Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Okay, we are back with law professor Kim Whaley, whose new book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. Uh, She's a former assistant U.S. attorney and also the author of How to Read the Constitution and Why. So we were talking about uh, Samuel Alito's logic. I, I do think it's important. I want to go back and underline something we were talking about before. You know that Alito's position about you know the deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. This is exactly the language he used about gay marriage. You know, he actually wrote, and I just want to read from his his dissent from Obergefell. He said to prevent five unelected justices from imposing their personal vision of liberty upon the American people, the court has held that liberty under the due process clause should be understood to protect only those rights that are deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. And it is beyond dispute, he writes, that the right to same-sex marriage is not among those rights. So again, you kind of see the iron chains of logic here, that if that is the standard, then Samuel Alito himself believes that you, 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 you know, that the decision in Obergefell was, was incorrectly decided. 
Exactly. He, you know, and in this opinion, he basically gives us three caveats to say, oh, don't worry. If you're not a woman or girl of childbearing age, that you don't have to worry about this. Or if you have, number one is, as I said, it's involving a life. So something like sodomy, or, you know, I think it's the pejorative term, intimate sexual conduct that maybe, you know, a very conservative state might not want to condone, that's not involving life, so we're not going to worry about it. But the problem with that, Charlie, is the court has also said that under the Eighth Amendment, executions are constitutional, even if it's a false positive, even if it's a chance that the person being executed is innocent, you don't have a right to have government not execute you. So it's not a consistent distinction. The second is he calls. Oh, go ahead. Stay, stay with this point because he spends some time, a, a good deal of time, in this draft uh, of opinion, trying to distinguish, trying to say that that people who are nervous about these other issues, you know, don't have anything to worry about. And let me just read you what he writes: What sharply distinguishes the abortion right from the rights recognized in the cases on which Roe and Casey rely is something that both those decisions acknowledged. Abortion destroys what those decisions call potential life and what the law at issue in this case regards as the life of an unborn human being. None of the other decisions that we've been talking about involve the critical moral question posed by abortion. They are therefore inapposite. Is that how you pronounce that? Inapposite. Yes, that's right. <laughs> they, they do not support the right to obtain an abortion. And by the same token, our conclusion that the Constitution does not confer such a right does not undermine them in any way. It's a sense that he knows that there is going to be this sense that you're going to come for other rights. And he's saying, no, this is in a category of its own because it is a, another human life. I mean, isn't that the, the argument? And you're skeptical, though, that he can draw that bright red line. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's number one. And number one is, as I said, if the government just doesn't touch life or really protects life, then we'd have different Eighth Amendment jurisprudence. So that to me just, again, isn't, you know, it seems like there's more of a moralistic approach to that distinction than a legal one, because if it's a legal one, he couldn't make that because under the Eighth Amendment, that's not how life is treated. But also the problem there is that the court has already held that unborn fetal life doesn't have full citizenship. But on that theory, I think we could see the court in the future saying that's treated as, as a born, someone who's born. And again, what's the slippery slope of that when it comes to, you know, insurance, when it comes to other legal protections, when it, I mean, I don't know the cascade of ripple effects on the economy and the law if we're starting to talk about, you know, fetal life having full rights as a, as a person. So that's number one. Number two, he says that, well, it'll still get rational basis review. Um, so to back up a little bit, under the Due Process Clause and under the Equal Protection Clause, which is also in the 14th Amendment, people have probably heard of that. That's where equal protection is where we got Brown versus Board of Education, for example, where the court said that segregated schools are unconstitutional, even if they're equal. Again, not in the Constitution. So if we're going to use Toledo Step 1, Brown could potentially be on the chopping block. Um, but he says, he says, you know, it, it will still get rational basis. Race gets strict scrutiny, meaning the government has to have a really good reason to start regulating race. Gender gets something called intermediate scrutiny. Government has to have an in-between reason to regulate 
things relating to gender. All of this, again, made up, not in the Constitution. I was just going to say, these are <laughs> all of it made up. Made up totally, <laughs> totally manufactured by the yeah. Supreme Court fairies. So honestly, <laughs> we are just going to, I mean, the, the logic of this, Charlie, you asked me at the top of the show, the logic of this, I basically just burned my book on the Constitution because so much of it is just, it's just the court making stuff up because we need some rules. So then there's rational basis. Rational basis is like throw the spaghetti on the wall, like literally back to Meyer versus Nebraska. If you're in a state that wants to prioritize English, then that works. As long as the government comes up with an excuse, then it's good to go. So that's not really a test. And then he says, this is my favorite. It's what I call the far, far afield test. He says, all these other circumstances like, you know, gay marriage. I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head, which cases he cites, but, you know, contraception, they're so far, far afield. That is what, to me, just goes right into the subjectivity of these folks. Like, I guess Alita will tell us, it's kind of like, we know pornography and we see it. We'll know the far, far afield test when we see it. That to me, Charlie, is not a test. That's not a legal test. That's the kind of thing that should be a personal decision or in some democratically elected branch of government. <laughs> well, yes. Okay, so at, at the risk of doubling back and repeating ourselves, but we can do that on a podcast, right? Everything doesn't yes. have to be linear. Because while we were talking about all this, I mean, I, I actually understand the point that he's making here, but but I also you know share the concern about the increased radicalization and, and, and how rapidly it moves, how rapidly these litmus tests move. And that once you basically decide that unless a right was, you know, has deep tradition, so unless you had this right in, I don't know, 1918, um, we're not going to recognize it, which underlies maybe the importance of learning more about American history. What were the rights that we recognize deep in American history? Were there times when there are rights that we take absolutely for granted now um, were not respected at all? And, and so is that now the standard that you get the rights that people had in what? 1841. Uh, Which were for white males. And and that's the problem also with the decision. Women didn't have rights. I mean, women couldn't own property. Women had no access to their children on a divorce. Women couldn't engage in contracts. You know, lots of women couldn't vote until the 20th century. So, so if that's, if that's where we're going, we're really going backwards. And I, you know, he cites Plessy versus Ferguson and, you know, he talks about egregiously wrong Supreme Court decisions. But up until this one, the egregiously wrong ones have been in a trajectory where we're recognizing more individual rights as compared to the the power of government. That's the original frame I'm talking about. It's not a full libertarian view. It's just like, wait a minute, we, we really need to confine government. We just really need to have, we need some red lines. Um, I'm not saying we should have no government, but we should, we have to have some red lines because once they get gray, once they get squishy, or, you know, they're coming for us eventually. And I know that sounds conspiratorial, but that's just human nature. So once again, to, uh, and I apologize for repeating myself here, but to underline how raw and recent some of these decisions are, I'm looking at the dissent in, in Lawrence versus Texas, which is 2003, the, the first time that the Supreme Court said that you could not criminalize homosexual sex. Antonin Scalia, who continues to be just a giant on the legal right, you know, wrote in dissent, and he said that if the court wasn't prepared to validate laws based on moral choices, then state laws against bigamy, same-sex marriage, hmm, prostitution, masturbation, adultery, fornication, bestiality, and obscenity would not uh, be sustainable. And listen to his language. This is 2003. This is less than 20 years ago. Today's opinion 
Scalia wrote, is the product of a court, which is the product of a law profession culture that has largely signed on to the so-called homosexual agenda, by which I mean the agenda promoted by some homosexual activists directed at eliminating the moral opprobrium that is traditionally attached to homosexual conduct. The court has taken sides in the culture war, departing from its role of assuring as neutral observer that the democratic rules of engagement are observed. Again, that is 2003. Right. Uh, The decision in in Lawrence, which said you cannot criminalize homosexual sex, was authored by Anthony Kennedy and supported by John Paul Stevens, David Suda, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Stephen Breyer, none of whom will be on the court. (laughs) Right. I mean, next month. Yeah, a a few things. First of all, the backtracking is great because this takes a whole semester in law school to actually lay out. So we're doing a lot of work in 45 minutes. Um, Number two. We learn people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Number two is that, um, of course, the things you listed, it's not just gay couples that engage in some of those activities, right? So which part is the is is the moral uh, sort of appropriate applying to the conduct or the fact that it's it's people of the same gender? And of course, now we're redefining genders again. Hot mess. I just it, that just opens a whole can of worms. And the the well, last and the, piece, and the, culture and I'll just say, war, the culture wars obviously are not over since you know no, and they're, they're that, ramping you know? up. It's like right, a race right, yeah. to the bottom. It's yeah. a culture of cruelty. You know, this is this is as cruel as you can be. That's that's how you're going to get um, you're going to get nominated for a certain party right now. And the last piece is is Justice Alito. And you know, you also you know, I also wrote a book on voting, how to mm-hmm. um, what you need to know about voting and why. And he says, well, if women want to have their uh, access to abortion, they should just vote or run for office. And, you know, we could do a whole conversation on whether the electoral system is is on the trajectory in terms of, of protecting people's access to the ballot. That's not realistic. And this court has really been hostile to voting rights as well. So if the answer is, and I think this is the court's answer to a lot of this stuff, I mean, I'm and I'm predicting here, Charlie, I do think more rights are going to go and they're going to feel okay about it because they're going to say, send it to the states, send it to state legislatures. But then we have to feel, and we're in this big lie world, right? We're, we're seeing the co-opting as our colleague Mona Charon has written of, you know, sort of the, the, the elected officials and the people within government that are actually charged with implementing elections. They're going to start calling elections on, in ways potentially that are inconsistent with the vote. Are we really comfortable that the, the electoral process is going to to, to sort out the way we we want our culture wars to resolve. I mean, the la- latest poll I saw is only 5% of Americans want to see Roe versus Wade completely reversed. And there's at least 13 states already that have trigger laws in place to completely ban abortions. And some of those are including for rape, incest, and the life of the mother, which I think traditionally the Republican Party has been, okay, we, we're not for abortion, but we, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, uh, Rape, incest, life of the mother, of course, will protect those. So the legislatures are not, at least on those raw statistics, modeling the spirit of the public. So I'm just not comfortable that punting this to the states is going to protect rights. That's why we have a constitution, right? That's the point. Yeah. And I think it is such a naive take to think that somehow this is going to turn down the temperature of the culture wars, you know, by letting the democratic process hammer it out. I mean, look, uh, 
we are dropping this issue into the cauldron of the culture wars at a moment of maximum demagoguery, extremism, disinformation, and bad faith. Exactly. Also, for all of our talk about democracy, there are some things I don't want to put up for a vote. I do not want to have a vote where the majority decides what I read, what I look at, what I do, all of those things. And that is your point. What is the, the limits of government? Well, the limits of government is also the limits of the democratic majority. We shouldn't have a vote on things that are fundamental rights of the the individual. At least that's the way I would look at it. That I don't want to have a town hall meeting about what I should wear, what I should eat, and uh, you know what I should look at online. Exactly. And I'll tell you, you know, we joke about strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and rational basis. The law under the First Amendment when it comes to religion and speech is dizzying. The tests on tests on tests on tests. I mean, there is so much in there that's not enumerated. And, you know, uh, that's the whole idea of a constitution. The framers, you know, we had the Articles of Confederation, which was more of a direct democracy. And the framers like, wait a minute, you know, populism is dangerous. People, you know, bad information spreads six times faster than accurate facts. We need somebody in the middle. And that is the constitution to say, no, there's some red lines that government can't interfere with. And honestly, Charlie, you just said it better than I think, you know, anyone could when you say the things you don't want government to be able or referendum, I should say, you know, town hall meetings to determine for yourself. Um, There aren't any limits now under Justice Alito's two part test other than what these folks decide and what our state legislatures decide. And of course, we're seeing the electoral process really become corrupted. And I, I don't know if it'll survive another election in terms of the adherence to the popular vote, the idea that, okay, we're going to recognize what the people want rather than government deciding, no, we're going to throw the votes out and we're going to decide what we want for the people. And that's where we're on. And that's what is so problematic when you consider what's happening there, which I know you talk about a lot, in conjunction with the Dobbs draft, that's what keeps me up at night. So Kim Whaley is a law professor at the University of Baltimore, contributor to Politico, The Atlantic, and The Bulwark, and her new book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. Kim, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Charlie. And thanks for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And a quick reminder, my newsletter, Morning Shots, is available as part of Bulwark Plus. Just go to thebulwark.com slash charlie today to sign up for a 30-day free trial and add The Bulwark to your daily routine. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.